run-up to where we are today, <coughs> the, um, the experience uh, that I uh, was able to have, <coughs> a very intensive one, uh, at the Transformation School in Northern Ireland in July, was uh, this school was called Back to the Future because in the um, divisions that are between the two historic communities of the country of Northern Ireland, uh, the Protestants being about 50% and the, Pro the Catholics being about 46%, um, they, uh, the tremendous emphasis that is placed uh, in communities like that on your identity, who you're, uh, where you come from, uh, what, uh, uh, what are your roots, uh, who are you ethnically or from a tribal point of view or from a religious point of view. These play out very strongly. But the reason the summer school in Antrim was called A Back to the Future, which was a very good title, is it's very clear that the world is uh, going far more in the direction of hyper-contextuality than universalizing, which is to say all over the world, people are really into their identities in a way that they weren't. I mean, the, you all know that the war in Yugoslavia would never have taken place under the communists. Why? Because the communists suppressed all identities that were racial or ethnic in that country. They forced everyone to look to the larger good or the larger program, capital P, and so civil wars were subsumed under a bigger identity. As soon as you pulled the plug on that, everybody went back to war again, which was latent already. You understand what I'm saying? And things like whether you're Slavic or uh, whether you're Muslim, whether you're a Bosnian Serb, these things became huge, and you know about this. Well. The same uh, is true all over the world. Uh, Ceylon is wracked by conflict. I'm uh, in the middle of a very, um, actually a very important uh, consultation in Virginia Seminary in Alexandria. I got back last night and have to go back again tonight uh, on the International Anglican Doctrine Commission. <coughs> and uh, one of the uh, men uh, who is in an area where uh, Islam is coming very strongly with Sharia law in northern uh, uh, Nigeria we were going around, what is your email address? Do you have access to the internet? And this very dear Bishop Matthew said in a very hard to understand accent, he said, I have access 50 miles away, but it is through rebel-held territory. <laughs> now, I mean, here I am, you know, coming up from Charlotte, you know, <laughs> on U.S. air. Uh, you know, the bathrooms aren't very well in kept in, at Charlotte Airport because U.S. air is in such trouble, but that's been true for a long time. But um, he, he has an internet outlet uh, 50 miles away, but it's through rebel territory. I mean, think about the implications of that one statement. Uh, and he wasn't kidding around. And the same uh, is true throughout the world. Uh, as I said, uh, Pakistan, India, um, all the troubles are related to the question of who am I? And in our country, uh, I don't need to be overly anecdotal, just to say all you need to do is watch any talk show. I mean, any talk show, and totally involved. People, uh, certainly in our country as well, are involved in who they are. I mean, am I a victim? Am I, am I fat? Am I thin? Am I pretty or am I anorexic? How do I define myself through my bulimia? How do I define myself through this, that, and the other thing? Uh, American people are notoriously characters in search of an author because you, generally speaking, are not as confident, for the most part, 
about who we are because we live in a melting pot and we came over to get away from all that stuff. And, and uh, that's why often American people are very intimidated by foreign intellectuals because they feel incipiently uh, lacking in confidence for their own identity uh, and uh, feel, uh, you know, because we don't learn languages. I mean, for example, no American really learns a fluent language unless they have to. And uh, so you go over to Sweden, and of course they all speak English to you, but, but you like it because you'd feel like an idiot if they started speaking their own language. And we all are looking for identity, and, and I'm looking for identity, and you're looking for identity. I mean, what kind of college did you go to, uh, in your mind at least? Uh, what kind of institutions are you connected with? What clubs do you lust after or do you have no time for? Uh, identity are, issues are tremendously significant. Um, what is your ancestry, if any? Uh, that you can think of. Uh, uh, just what about being a woman? What, what effect do, 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 does that have on you? Well, what effect, how is your being a woman uh, identified with your identity as a person? Uh, what about if you're sort of a beleaguered, lacking in confidence man? How does your being a man, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I very much, in the theological world of academe, if I were a black female, I would be incredibly more marketable than I am. So I often wish that I were a black female because then I, 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 no, I mean, because then I would be able to qualify for jobs that, that are not available to people who look like I do in theory. Um, and, and you may know this, and identity is a, is a huge issue. Well, I've looked at identity in social class, which is a huge, and I've looked at identity uh, in terms of gender. And today, I'm starting two weeks of looking at identity from the point of view of your parents, our parents. How do our parents uh, affect and shape our identity? And I'm going to speak for about 15 minutes and then open it up to questions and uh, there we're going to go. This is a, uh, a two-part. Today we're going to talk about fathers and identity and next time we're going to talk about mothers and identity. When I taught this somewhere recently, this is new material, uh, it was like I had uh, went down like a lead balloon. And I said to somebody, why do you think everybody was so kind of hung over after that thing? And this person just said like that because it was too close to home. Now, I don't think, I think he was being nice. I think it was like a lead balloon. And it may be today, but we are dealing with enormously significant issues. When we look at the question of how has your father in particular, I'm talking about your natural father, whether you had a natural father. Some people do not even know who their natural father is. Other people had a natural father who's been out of the picture for a long time. Some people have a natural father who's dead. Some people have a natural father whom they truly love and who has made an enormously positive impression on everything that you've come to be. Others have had fathers who, if you listen to them carefully, appear to have been uh, really the white, wicked white witch of Narnia, you know, the equivalent thereof, uh, some terrible evil genius. And uh, uh, so you, you have to think for just a minute with me about your natural father. And this will also speak to you if you are a dad to children, if you are a father to children, hopefully this will speak to you. And what we're going to do uh, is look very briefly at uh, St. Paul's Letter to the Romans, the fourth chapter, and I'd like you to join me in reading it. I'm going to explain how close this is to fathering and say a little bit about what uh, St. Paul means here about dads, and then we'll, we'll uh, 
will we'll go on next week. Because in all of the, uh, the governing assumptions in this course is that identity does not exist. Human identity is a projection. It's a figment. And as you go through the customary suspects of what constitutes human identity, you quickly realize that most of them are fictitious. I mean, I've had a son who's just spent a week on Nantucket. He said, Dad, I'm the poorest man on Nantucket. But he then uh, perceived, he was also the poorest man in anywhere he wanted to name. <laughs> uh, poor in absolute terms. But it, he had never been actually exposed to the, to the quintessential Northeast preppy thing. He just never, he went to a boarding school in the Northeast, but he'd never really taken aboard the so-called, the projection of the Northeast preppy world, which uh, still uh, uh, is quite active on the island of Nantucket. And um, it's an alienating place. Uh, and yet, as you know, if, if the rapture happened and all the non-preppies and ethnics were harvested from Nantucket Island, even then 95% of them would go away. Because uh, we learn these things are projections. Everybody has a strange aunt or really is legitimate or, uh, or uh, uh, ha had some funny blood in there or is half this or half that or you name it. Um, and as I often say to you, yesterday's immigrant is today's socialite. And uh, this is, um, th th these things, the first point I made was that human identity is fluid. It's, it's basically non-existing. It's very hard to pin it down. Uh, secondly, if it did exist, it would be worthy of damnation. Very heavy statement. If it did exist, God would have to damn it because it would be my identity that I had achieved and it would create self-righteousness. If you had it, then you'd be self-righteous to those who don't. And if you didn't have it, you'd hate the people that had it. You know, you, could take, you can take any number of communities in this city, well, usually there are one or two, and either you have it or you don't have it and you hate those who do have it. And there are people who really have complexes. Just around, let's say you go to some place like uh, Nashville or Memphis and there are these couple of fancy communities and the people that live there supposedly have an attitude and the people that don't live there have a worse attitude. And uh, they, they have huge projections about what the people are like there or here or whatever. And these things are worthy of damnation because they create, on the one hand, hatred or self-righteousness. And the third issue of this uh, talk series of, of six or seven classes was the uh, fact that identity is fundamentally a gift. Identity is a gift. Uh, identity is given usually through love. Your identity is given through love. It is not given through anything else. And this is why uh, Ebenezer Scrooge's story in uh, A Christmas Carol is such a powerful picture of a man who discovers that his identity is nothing because he hasn't been loved. And he discovers his identity in loving. His projected identity turns into a powerful, true identity before God. And that's why that story is of such power every year when it's read and acted out. Now, looking with me at St. Paul's letter to the Romans, I want to take this passage, which at first seems very, very far away and theological, and try to make it real, or try to, to show you how what Paul is backing into here is of great consequence to you, and I mean, preachers always say to you and to me. I don't like that. To me, that's overly concessive. I'm talking about you. Uh, this, 
It, this relates to you and to all people in our relations with our fathers. This remarkable but very theological passage. Will you read it with me? Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Well, what um, people do is that they are always needing a father. Everyone here needs a father, a comforter, a supporter, someone who's entirely in your corner who is dedicated to your good, who is in fact uh, selfless, who is wise, who is tender, who is uh, genuine and sincere, and who is kind and patient with your shortcomings uh, and at the same time evocative of your best. And uh, this is what everyone who has ever lived in the history of the world requires. And what people have been doing for... Um, centuries since the first person was born is we've been looking for fathers. We either have it in our father, natural father, and it's, you're very fortunate, by the way, if you had a natural father who was a, uh, had some of the qualities I've just mentioned, you would be a very fortunate person. I won't ask you to raise your hand, uh, but if you have or had such a father, you are a very, very fortunate human being. Uh, a very small percentage of people have such a father because there are a very small percentage of those people around. They usually had a pretty good dad. Um, others uh, don't, but let's imagine that your earthly father has died or he's far away. We're always looking for a dad. Now, if you didn't have a, a father or if your father has been someone that you didn't uh, derive those kinds of qualities from, then you've spent a lot of time looking for one looking for a new father. And this is why teachers play such a huge role. There's not a college professor on the earth who, when a student comes to have, meet with him for 15 minutes during office hours, really has a real question, except one, love me. If, if you're a father, you, if you're a teacher, you know this very quickly. What you thought was an intellectual situation is in fact a psychodynamic hunger uh, if you've ever taught, if you've ever taught little ones to bigger ones, if you've ever taught Sunday school, if you've ever taught PhD students, you know that people really are very desperate for a positive father, even if they had a good one who's not around. Um, I've learned this. I've, I've, I've had so many surrogate fathers, I can count them on my fingers and toes. And what happened is, the further up I got in the chain of life, the more famous my father's, or well-known, or big-time my father's got. And Ernst Kesemann, who was a genuine genius and a world historical people person, for him to be the father figure, I mean, what are you, how can you repeat that? After he dies, what are you supposed to do? Who's going to be your father next? You know, people are like heat-seeking missiles for father figures. 
even people who are 60. I, I pricked up. I was with a guy yesterday who's 61. He's 10 years older than I am, and he's a very, very fine African-American theologian, and I really liked him. And I noticed even then that I was beginning to put him into a father slot because I figured he was just 10 years older than I was. Can you, uh, can you, how, how ridiculous. Um, well, but of course, what happens is you run through your fathers. Either they die, they disappoint you, they really aren't interested in you in the same way you thought they were interested in you, and uh, you run through your human father figures until you're, 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 you're dead. And um, Paul here goes back to a story in which he discovers a man who he decides is the father of us all, Abraham. And in looking at Abraham's fathering, he discovers God, who is the ultimate father. Because look, this is, it's obvious to, 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 to us that what we all want is we want a father who doesn't go away. We want a father who endures and a father who has... Uh, who is uh, profoundly strengthening. And these are all shadow boxing or surrogates. You know, when you have your children, I'm sure you've been praying about this. Mary and I have prayed for so long that our children will know when it's the right time to go into therapy. <laughs> now, that's a throwaway line I sometimes use, but let me put it another way. Let me put it another way. As a father, this is a prayer that is genuine, and you might know it for your, in your own life as a mom or a dad. You pray that your children will run into the right surrogate parents when they need them. Because sometimes they run into the wrong surrogate parents when they need help. They run into the wrong influence. They run into the wrong peers, and sometimes they run into the wrong advisors. And you'd be very well advised to pray that, especially when your child far away at some point is in need of help, that they run into the right surrogates. Um, a family in the parish has had a very, very sick child in Charlotte, and uh, the minister of the Episcopal Church in Charlotte uh, is the genuine article. You know, he's, he's the genuine article as opposed to not being. And uh, it was so wonderful that we knew that the right guy was there when there was a great distress and tremendous problem that meant so much to me, just who's a friend and a pastor, all the more it would mean for your child. Now, here, he tries to find the right father, and what he discovers is that Abraham was given a promise that did not depend on what he calls the works of the law, the adherence of the law, in verse 16, but on faith. What happened was, Abraham... Uh, had no, uh, he and his wife, Sarah, had no natural children. And this was a terrible loss to him. And so he went out of his tent and he prayed to God with great despair. We're too old, we're not going to have children, and I'm very, very upset. And uh, God appeared to him and said in a voice, Abraham, if you look at the stars, so shall your descendants be. And this was a powerful word. And in the sixth verse of chapter 15, Abraham says, uh, it, was, it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham trusted God, and that was, gave him his identity. In trusting God, he got his identity. He, his, his definition is a man who heard the word, and trusted God simply because he found it possible to trust God, even though the evidence was a million miles away. That's uh, the prototype of all faith. And so Abraham becomes the perfect father. He becomes the father who realizes that, that love is based ultimately on the fact that I have to be a receiver, and all I can really do, my part of love, is to trust uh, God. 
And in trusting God, uh, there is enormous, powerful blessing and identity conferred. And this uh, allows uh, Paul, in verse 16, to say that he is the father of us all. But then, and I'm almost finished because I would like to have a few thoughts. So I'll take this theme for about four or five weeks because this is too important to rush through. Your relationship with your dad, uh, alive or dead, uh, perspective or actual, uh, is too important for me to rush. And what um, he, Paul then backs into the next very powerful statement. Will you read with me verse 17? As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Well, he now is able, because he has seen that fathering does not depend on achievement. Fathering does not depend on achievement or how thin you are or how well you do, but it is simply a matter of, of a gift of love he now is able to um, recognize his heavenly father. And what I'm always trying to get you to do is to move beyond the surrogate to the, to the lasting father. That's the, that's the great thing. I bring, of course, my own agendas about my own natural father to this, but you bring yours. Everybody here has a different perspective and a different experience. But what we are looking for is a lasting father. And this is where I'm going to finish. Look at what the father is, uh, how he is defined. The presence of the God in whom, whom he trusted. He trusted God. Um, this is the thing. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The uh, great thing that a father <coughs> does, as well as a mother, but in this case it's the father, the father is creative the Father is creative, and uh, the Father's love resurrects. Those are what, that's what the Father ultimately does, and that's where Christianity uh, comes boldly into play. Um, I am not creative by nature unless I'm angry. Remember, angry people are always creative. That, that, uh, and they're comedians. You know, they're usually comedians. Seinfeld, I mean, every comedian is an angry man. It's, it's the source of it. Paula Poundstone. I mean, it's all anger. <coughs> was, was. Uh, anger, uh, and most creative people, that's why they do so much. You know, I always get upset when people say, you know, gosh, he worked so hard. This guy is able to pull out so much work. I assume well, he must be a very angry man because the energy usually is angry, at least for a man. For a woman, I don't know, but I know for a man. But, but it's not real creativity. Real creativity is, it comes out of love. Real cre creativity is a labor of love, and you see it in yourself. When, you, when, when you're promoted in your work, you immediately are filled with energy. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, unless it's uh, up, kicked upstairs. But if anybody here, if you're actually promoted, you're affirmed, and someone says, you're great, I want you to do the next higher-up position. I mean, I watch men, I mean, sometimes I know friends of mine who get elected bishop, and I mean, it's like they had a double shot of my baby's love, you know. They are, and I, you know, suddenly they're filled with energy. They were sort of hung over, very, very besieged, arduous, overweight wretches. I'm talking about myself. And suddenly, just kidding, and suddenly they got elected bishop in southwest Canada, and all of a sudden it's like the Viagra times 12. And what happens is, what happened is, because they have been loved, they have been powerfully affirmed, and their creativity, they're shot from outside a gun. This is why I always be careful if newly promoted people are too energetic. Because what comes, goes up, what goes up must 
come down. But having said it, it is in the power of fatherly love to engender creativity. And uh, everybody here who's ever had a father who really encouraged them, especially at a time of, of great uh, distress or a time of when you really felt terribly uh, undone and unable to move, uh, the power of an encouraging word from a father is uh, analogous to the power of the grace of God to build creativity. And the second thing, which is along the same lines, is the father gives life to the dead. The kind of love of which I'm speaking uh, creates uh, life where there was no life whatsoever. And usually, I might add, this is through surrogate fathers. Because uh, with a natural father, sometimes the static is so great that you don't quite get that word. But we know that the power of love to give you a new wind uh, and a new start in love is absolutely overwhelming in people's lives. Um, I like to think that the essence of ministry is uh, knowing people uh, as well as possible but ultimately not throwing stones and not condemning. And this seems to produce creativity. I mean, I don't know if you saw that skit just now, but I mean, the creativity that was involved, believe it, with all the craziness, th th that group must feel loved somewhere. I mean, imagine getting out there and being as ridiculous as they were. Uh, I mean, look at Miriam Morris out there. I mean, look at, look at the lack of inhibition that bespeaks humility. See, a lack of inhibition, when someone, I mean, any number of those people can be that out there it bespeaks the person who's been freed from guilt. N not, not because they're in your face, but it's, love always bespeaks freedom from judgment, and it has the power to resurrect a church, not to mention a human being. Well, that's all I wanted to say about a father's love today, and I'd like to continue the theme of fathering and mothering and what St. Paul understood about the power of creative grace to change us next week. Now, we've got seven minutes comments or questions about the love of Father as related to this passage. Jamie McAdams. In raising children, so often we try to instill values in them, yes. that when they get to a point where they have to put it to bed, that you spoke a minute ago about hopefully they'll pick the right one or sometimes they'll pick the wrong one. Yes. Is it also not knowing that kids sometimes pick exactly the opposite of what you want? Uh, Jamie has just asked, is it all for naught in seeing that sometimes children pick exactly the opposite of what you have tried to instill in them when they become of a certain age? Is that your question? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Who wants to uh, chime in on that one? Uh, what, what, what about it? When, when you've, you've tried to instill values, right, and, and what you believe in your, you know, is right, and then, and then they go the opposite direction. Well, there's a lot to be said about that. Anybody want to comment on that? Heather, stand up so we can hear you. Well, that's maybe it's complimentary. They're, they're trying to find something that you couldn't, that they thought they wanted. That's a very ambiguous possibility. Uh, but I, 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 as we say in the trade, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> who else wants to comment on, on surrogate parents and how this fits in with Christian upbringing? Who wants to comment on that? Uh, yes. Oh, Ken, hey. I'm wearing your shoes. just want you to know that. Yeah.
Well, that's very powerful. That's very, very powerful, Ken Shea. Thank you. Who wants to chime in on this surrogate parent issue? Uh, Don Menendez. Stan, Don. What a wonderful thing to say. I want to underline that uh, because that's, why, that's how you can trust your children to God even when things take strange turns. I, 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 we, Mary and I would swear by that. Thank you. Other comments on fathering, the fatherhood of God and surrogate parents? Mary, you've had a lot of thought. Hang on just one second. Do you want to say anything about surrogate parents? Stand up. But tell me how you interpreted what John said. Stand up. And I'll get how did you hear what John said? Don, I know. Don Menendez. <laughs> uh, Don, say it. I, I, what you said was that we, uh, this is for the tape because it goes all over and on the website, that we um, uh, need to constantly let go of our children to their Heavenly Father. So through all these comings and goings, they will ultimately come to that ultimate Father. That is, did I understand you rightly, Don? Thank you very, very much. Yes, sir. And then Lydia. Two more, two more comments and then we're done. Wow. Yes, thank you very much. Maybe you want to change your life. Um, again, the, the, the best, the, the surrogate parent is dealing in the divine human relationship. One step, obviously, removed. I've got one other thing I want to say, but Lydia, last comment. Thank you, Lydia Smith, very much. Uh, Mary Zoll, stand up and chime in. Because, because it's, we think our, we take ourselves too seriously. We are not God, and we will never be in our parents' Yes, yes. Well, that, that is what, very much what I got from Don as well. And all, oh, we have one, one more comment real quick from Fonda.
Yes. Wow, Fonda, thank you very, very much. Thank you all. It's time to finish. Let me make one other announcement. Uh, next week, we'll have a little more time. Uh, I will go